Good morning, Cornerstone family. It's good to see everybody on this Lord's Day. My name is Mike Berry. I'm privileged to preach this morning. And yes, I would appreciate it if there's no booze. If you can, uh, if you wouldn't mind, open up to Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22, we're going to be looking at verses 31 and 32. Uh, But as you guys are turning there, um, I'm going to read from 1 Peter chapter 5 to kind of set the stage um, for our text this morning. 1 Peter 5, not 1 Simon 5, 1 Peter 5 verse 1 says, as a fellow elder, a witness of Christ's sufferings and a partaker of the glory to be revealed, I appeal to the elders among you, shepherds of God's flock that is among you, watching over them, not out of compulsion, but because it is God's will, not out of greed, but out of eagerness, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock, and when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. Let's go ahead and pray before we jump into this morning's message. Lord, we ask this morning that as we come to your holy word, that you would clothe us in humility toward one another, knowing that you oppose the proud but you give grace to the humble. And we ask, Lord, that you would help us to humble ourselves under your mighty hand um, so that in due time, you may exalt us. We cast our anxieties on you, knowing that you care for us. We also pray that you'd help us to be sober-minded and on the alert, knowing that our adversary, the devil, prowls about as a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour So help us to resist him and help us to stand firm in the faith and in the gospel and the knowledge that we do not stand alone, but we have brothers and sisters all around the world that are undergoing the same kind of suffering. We pray this in Christ's name and all God's people said, amen. Well, in 1 Peter 5, there's a tenderness um, a humility as Peter instructs these shepherds and his, as he shepherds these sheep with this epistle. The chief shepherd uh, loves his church. He loves his sheep. He loves you, his lambs. And he loves his lambs so much that he wasn't going to let Simon loose on those whom he loves without teaching Peter about his own love. Simon would have done to the sheep what he did to Malchus there in the garden without some tenderizing. You know, this last Thursday, we celebrated the life of Norman, Norman Gary Barfoot. I didn't know that his first name was Norman until Thursday. And those of you guys that knew Gary, you know that he was a tender man, and I had the privilege of knowing him. And one of the ways that he blessed me was after getting to know me after many months, he spoke kindly some very hard truths to me one day in my office. 
And this former deputy base commander of March Air Force Base left me in a puddle in my office, and it was all in love. And fortunately or unfortunately, I have had many opportunities to get loved here at Cornerstone over the years. Loved by Gary, uh, loved by Milton and Donna. In fact, uh, yesterday was Pastor Milton Vincent's 57th birthday, by the way. So we're thankful for that and thankful, Pastor Milton and Donna, for the way that you have loved me and Katie. Other elders at this church have also loved me to the point of tears And my wife has loved me more than all (laughs) y'all, speaking truth to me in love for years. And I think whenever you find someone who can tell you the truth in love, when you find someone who can tell you what's up and you actually feel loved by the wound, you can pretty much guarantee that that person has been through some stuff themselves. Because that just doesn't come natural. And when you find people like that, we want to cling to those kinds of friendships. Because when you find a friend like that, I mean, think about it. Who is going to tell Pastor Mike the straight scoop? Who's going to do that? Um, Well, people that are close enough in my life that love me enough to tell me the straight scoop truth be told is we lie to ourselves and we believe our own lies and then we suddenly regulate how people to tell us we are as Paul Tripp says very skilled self swindlers and who can break through all of that and break us down in love and then build us up again well I've had some good friends over the years many of them here at Cornerstone, but there's not a friend like the lowly Jesus. No, not one. No, not one. And I think um, we love the text before us. I love the text before us here in Luke 22 so much because we identify with Simon and we see the tender love of Jesus And when I read this text, I know that I am Simon. But Jesus Christ, the Son of God, my rock, keeps reminding me that I'm Peter. Because I'm on the rock, I'm in the rock, I'm accepted by the beloved rock. And yet Jesus, also in his kindness, doesn't let me forget my indwelling Simon. I am at present both Simon and Peter. We are all Simon Peter. The title of this morning's message, if you want to give it a title, is The Finisher of Our Faith. And in our text this morning, Jesus makes three revelations designed to shake down Simon's self-confidence and reassure him of where his true strength lies. The first of the Lord's revelations designed to shake down Simon's self-confidence is in verse 31, Revelation 1, well, Luke 22, but we're going to talk about this revelation where Jesus says, Simon, Simon, indeed, Satan has asked for you that he may sift you 
as wheat. And our first point is this, the Lord speaks passionately to Simon about Satan's demand to sift all of them as wheat. Notice the way that Jesus opens up this little personal devotion. Simon, Simon. It's almost like Martha, Martha. Michael, Michael. What's in a name? You know, these days we don't tend to give the same kind of value that ancient Jews gave to their names. And there's significance, I believe, uh, to Christ's use of Simon's names, plural. What he calls him and when he calls him, what name is very significant. Uh, Just by way of review, if you don't know this, Simon is his family given name. It's the name that he had when he was a fisherman, when Jesus found him on the sands of the Sea of Galilee. It literally means he who hears or he who obeys, a hearing one. And it's a contracted form of the Old Testament, Simeon, a hearing, which is kind of ironic since Simon seems to say what's on his mind more than any other disciple. Rather than a hearing one, he is a speaking one. And there are a lot of similarities between this Simon and Simeon of the Old Testament. But Jesus almost always calls him Simon, even after he had renamed him, spoiler alert, Peter. And we're going to see that in verse 32 or 34. In this gospel, in Luke's gospel, uh, Jesus only calls him Peter twice, once when he first met him and here when he's uh, foretelling his betrayal or his denial. Yet it is Jesus who re- is the one who renames Simon. Remember uh, over in John chapter 1, verse 42, the very first time he met him when Andrew b- brought his brother to Jesus, he says, so you are Simon, the son of John, you shall be called Cephas, that's the Aramaic, which means Peter or rock. Over in Luke 6.14, Luke reminds us that his name is Simon, whom he, that is Jesus, named Peter. So Peter is the name that Jesus gave him long before any of the stuff transpired in these three years of discipleship. So he names him the rock long before his sinking like a rock, sleeping like a rock, saying things as dumb as a rock because he knew that he was going to be founded upon the rock of that confess in Jesus Christ, the Messiah. That he says in Matthew 16, by the way, where Jesus says, you are Peter and on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail seems that perhaps Peter began to get a little self-confident even right there, started to tell Jesus what he can and cannot do when it comes to the cross. And so then Jesus gives him a new name, calls him Satan. So he goes from the rock, Dwayne Johnson, to the accuser. And uh, in just a few seconds, how's that for a new name? But you have... Peter being referred to by the gospel writers as Peter most often because the gospel writers are writing right in the future back upon uh, Peter's testimony. 
And so whenever Jesus is speaking of Peter, it's Simon. But whenever the disciples are writing about him, it's Peter. Because it seems like he's grown into his namesake. So here we have Jesus saying, Simon, Simon. It's a very tender uh, two words that seems to be solemn. And there's almost like a foreboding of what is to come. And yet Jesus is not shy to remind Peter of his Simon. Before we move on, let's just be reminded that we are all Simon Peter, as it were. We are a mixed bag. Sometimes all you see is Simon. Sometimes all you see is Peter. But we are Simon Peter, and Christ knows which name will prevail. He says, Simon, Simon, behold, Simon, listen to this, look at this, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat. Think about this, Satan, the accuser, the adversary has asked, the idea here is he's demanded something for himself, he wants it. He wants something. Who did Satan ask? Well, he probably is asking the father for something because Christ later is also interceding. Could be that he comes to the whole Trinity. We do know that Satan did come to tempt Christ in Matthew 4. We don't know exactly, but at the very least, the Godhead. And part of what we learn here is that Satan needs to ask for things before he can do them. But he has asked, he has prayed, and by implication, based upon what happens, there's at least an aspect of this demand that is granted. And God has given permission for Satan to do what is described here, to sift you as wheat. And the you here is plural. This is sift each of you. Jesus is looking at Peter in the eyeballs, but he's talking about everybody that's still gathered around Peter, probably minus Judas, who Satan has already entered in verse 3. But he looks at Peter and says, Satan is asked to sift the rest of you. And he's looking at Peter in the eyeball. Why is he looking at Peter particularly? Perhaps he knows that Peter is the one that's going to need the most encouragement. Maybe it's because he's the one that seems to always speak up and say his mind. He knows how impetuous he is. Maybe it's partially because he is going to be a shepherd of sheep. And so he looks at Peter square in the eyeballs and says, Satan is asking for all of you. This is an unparalleled expression, this sift as wheat, that seems to have the idea of turbulence Wheat being tossed, the idea is being tossed with great tribulation, which is exactly what happens to the remaining 11 disciples as they just get tossed about and they just don't seem to know which way is up. They thought this was going a certain direction in spite of everything that Christ had been telling them about his need to suffer. But when he's actually arrested, they're just completely shocked and surprised and go running. Satan was not content with Judas and asked to sift Simon and the other disciples that he may winnow the apostolic band. 
so that's our first revelation and and that would i'm sure it should unsettle peter it would i think it would unsettle me if jesus looked at me or looked at you and said satan has asked for you to sift you as wheat don't think that the devil isn't asking for us regularly don't think that he is not accusing us regularly before the throne and using all the means at his disposal to try to bring a slander upon you and upon the sheep and upon the bride. And there is a part of us that believes the slander because truth be told, half of what the devil says is true. We are sinners still. What the devil doesn't remind us is we are saints. We are sinner saints simultaneously. We are Simon Peter. And so there is some value to what the devil wants to lay before us, but we need to listen to what Christ tells us and what Christ tells Peter. And that brings us to our second revelation. Second revelation from the Lord designed to shake down Peter's self-confidence and reassure him of where his true strength lies. Number two, the Lord tells Simon particularly that he has prayed for him that his faith would not fail. Man, this is a great, great verse. Starts off with, but I have prayed for you. And I love those conjunctions. When you hear something like, Satan's asked for you, or you were dead in trespasses and sins, but that's just reason to kind of get up out of your seat. Lean forward. What's Jesus going to say? I have prayed for you, which is a really interesting verb, the, the voice of this verb, and just it's really hard to try to figure out in some ways, what Christ is saying here, if you guys know grammar, there's a passive voice here. And um, the idea seems to be, he's a, I'm, I've allowed myself to be in the need to ask for myself something I earnestly desire. It's Christ earnestly desires the thing that he is asking the Father for, but it's almost like he's allowed himself to be in the position to ask for it. It's, it's really a loaded term. But he really, really wants it. He says, I have prayed for you. Now he goes from the plural to the singular. I've prayed for you, Simon. So now he's looking deep into his eyes. Focusing on Simon at this point. It's not that he hadn't prayed for the others. We know in John 17, he did pray for all of the disciples. But now he's particularizing Simon. Remember over in John 17, what was, it, what was part of that prayer in the high priestly prayer? He says, I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. I'm praying for you, Simon. Think about the prayer in 1715 for for a second in John 17 to say that he's not praying that they'd be taken out of the world is also Christ praying that we would not be completely removed from our sin yet because sin doesn't get entirely removed until we're dead or Christ comes back. So don't take them out of the world, but keep them 
from the evil one. And he's praying that his faith would not fail. I'm praying for you that your faith would not fail. That's a, I don't know about you, but that's a comforting prayer. That is a comforting prayer because I know if it was left totally up to me and if it was totally up to you, our faith would fail. There's one pastor that said recently, if I could lose my salvation, I would. And I resonate with that. But what about now? Jesus says, I prayed for you, past tense. But we know from the rest of scripture that Christ always lives to intercede for us, right? We have this idea of the intercessory work of Christ that is not somehow an, a, an adding to the finished work of the atonement as much as it is a refreshing of the atonement. One author says it's like hitting the refresh button on our justification page. That's what intercession is. The atonement accomplishes our salvation, but intercession is the moment-by-moment application of the atoning work. Uh, Ortland says in uh, a recent book, whereas the doctrine of the atonement reassures us with what Christ has done in the past, the doctrine of his intercession reassures us of what he is doing in the present. Right now, Jesus is interceding before the throne and, 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 being re- and the Father, the Trinity is being reminded as if the Trinity needed reminder, but we're talking about spiritual things here of our justified status. Remember what it says in Romans eight thirty three: who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who has died and furthermore is also risen, who is also at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. And so there's a connection between justification and intercession. And by the way, the rest of the chapter goes on to says there's no principalities or powers that can match this. Nobody can outmatch the love that Christ has for us. Later, we're going to see Christ go into the garden in this chapter and the disciples, because of sorrow, fall asleep. Louis Burkhoff says, it's a consoling thought that Christ is praying for us even when we are negligent in our own prayer life. I'm thankful that Jesus is the MVP. He's the most valuable prayer. I'm the, if you, my praying life is pretty sorry if I'm just honest. But Christ's prayer life is always on. And he's always refreshing, hitting the refresh button on our justification. So when the devil and Jesus both make claims on Peter, who do you think prevails? Who do you think prevails? Well, ultimately, we know Jesus prevails, but the devil is actually granted his request here for Jesus' sake, which is hard for us to get our minds around. The devil demands that he can have Peter and the other disciples to sift them, and Christ is also praying, but God in his wisdom grants the devil's demand for the sake of Jesus Christ and for the benefit of the disciples, which is part of what brings Peter down 
where he needs to be to know the love of Christ and then to feed his sheep. Let's look at a third revelation, a third revelation from the Lord designed to shake down Peter's self-confidence and reassure him of where his true strength lies. We've seen that the Lord speaks passionately to Simon Peter about Satan's demand to sift his wheat. The Lord tells Simon particularly that he's prayed for him, that his faith would not fail. But a third revelation is the Lord commands Simon positively to strengthen his brothers when, not if, when he turns back. So encouraging. The text says, and when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. The Lord's power and omniscience and love just laid out in this devotion for Peter. When you've turned back, the idea here is when you return, it's actually the same word that we hear and we see in the scriptures for conversion. When you are reconverted, so to speak, not in the sense of he's lost his salvation and now he's gained it back, but you've turned back to the only one, the rock. I've got a job for you. I want you to go out and strengthen your brothers. Go out and strengthen your brothers. What could Peter possibly have in his arsenal to strengthen his brothers after denying Christ three times? What could he possibly have in the tool bag other than look at how the Lord has forgiven me and the kindness that he has displayed towards me in calling me back to himself, protecting me, and actually renewing my ministry. That's all he's got. He can't point to himself. He can't point to his past and his pedigree. All he can do is point to Christ and say, look at how Jesus has loved me. And you guys know what I did. I mean, most of us in this room, all of us in this room, our sins aren't broadcast in holy writ for everybody to read about. But when I show up and you show up in heaven, we're going to see Peter and be like, man, God has been gracious to you. We've been reading about it our whole lives. And that's really all of our story. And that's all Peter would have to go on. But unfortunately, sometimes today, when we preach the gospel... We, we can almost come across like this. If you really get a hold of the gospel and you really, really believe it, then you'll be like Peter and you'll be ready to go both to prison and to death for the Lord. That's the way we'll preach the gospel. And that's the way Peter applies the gospel. Because after this wonderful devotion, let's look at Peter's applications to himself. He's just gotten personal eyeball to eyeball Devotion time from Jesus. And what's Simon's first application of the Lord's three revelations? He says in verse 33, Lord, said Peter, this is Luke calling Simon Peter, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. That's right. I'm going to get radical for you. 
I'm laying it down, Lord. I'm giving it all up. I'm going to take up the cross and follow you. And then the, all, you know, the other gospels tell us all the other disciples said the same. And mixed in with all this in the previous context, you've got them arguing about who's the greatest right after Jesus has said that one of you is going to betray me. And it's just interesting to see the blindness here, the, the self-swindling that is going on amongst the disciples. These guys are staring at Christ in the eyeballs and coming to the opposite conclusion of Christ's intent of the personal devotion. And yet Jesus has this all in his hands. This, we, we need to be careful as to thinking things are kind of out of control here. This is going exactly as Christ determined for Peter's good and the disciples' good. So was this the response that Jesus was after? Obviously not. Look at the Lord's specific application to Peter in verse 34. How does Jesus respond to Peter's bravado of devotedness? But Jesus replied, I tell you, Peter. And really, this is the only place in the book of Luke that Jesus specifically quotes, calls him Peter. He did rename him. Luke tells us he was renamed Peter in chapter 6. But this is the one place where quotation, so to speak, we have him calling him Peter. I tell you, Peter, rock, you rock. The rooster will not crow today until you've denied me three times that you know me. The rock. Jesus warns him that he will not remain firm like a rock, but will deny him not once, but repeatedly, not in the distant future, but that very night before daybreak. And I'm not going to get into the particulars here, but you guys know that Mark is the one gospel that tells us there were actually two cock crows. And when you look at kind of the way Romans would do the uh, the watches of the night, cock crow was from 12 a.m. to 3 a.m. So somewhere in there, 12 a.m. to 3 a.m., you have one cock that crowed. And Mark tells us about that one because Mark was Peter's assistant, right? Peter would have reflected back and remembered the first one. <clears throat> but all of the Gospels tell us about the second cock crow, which signaled the third denial. I posted something on Facebook. If you want to read all the particulars on that, look at my Facebook page. But <clears throat> Peter denies him just as is foretold here. So what in fact happens in the rest of the chapter? Peter says, I'm going to go to prison and death for you. Jesus says, actually, you're going to deny that you even know me. So who ends up being right? I mean, we know the story, but let's, let's, let's look at a few of the particulars. In verse 45, it says, when he rose up from prayer and he had come to his disciples, he found them sleeping from sorrow. That's a nice tender addition uh, from Luke. And I think one of the other gospels says the same thing. They weren't just sleeping because, you know, they just wanted to be lazy, but they, they were just depressed. There's a lot that had happened that night. A lot of revelations they didn't quite completely understand. They have this firm, they're going to stand up and be radical for the Lord. <clears throat> but at the end of the day, they fall asleep. 
and they're just sad. Then he said, why do you sleep? Rise and pray, lest you enter into temptation. Verse 47, and while he was still speaking, behold, a multitude, and he who was called Judas, one of the 12, went before them and drew near to Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? I'm sure Peter's watching all this just thinking, you dog, you dog. And while the, word, the gospels tell us that Judas betrayed him, which is a certain word of handing him up or giving him over, and Peter denies him, at this point, the disciples really don't know what the difference is between handing him over to the devil and denying that you know him. Verse 49, when those around him saw what was going, on, go, uh, going to happen to him, somebody says, uh, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And before that question can even be answered, one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. And we know that's Peter. So the question's asked, and Peter cuts off his ear, which either means this fisherman was an expert marksman with a sword and cutting off the ear, or he had really bad aim. He's probably going for his head. And got the ear. And then we know that Jesus healed the ear. And, and another text tells him to put his sword away. Which is interesting because Jesus is the one that told them to get the swords. Right? Here's two. Is this enough? Yeah, that's enough. For my purposes. <laughs> to teach you that we're not doing church this way. By the way. Jesus has all this planned out. Verse 60. Peter said... This is at the end of the denials. Man, I do not know what you are saying. And immediately while he was speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. So in this third denial, Christ is close enough to look in his eyeballs again. They get eye shot of each other. And Peter remembered the word of the Lord uh, how he had said to him, before the roaster cr rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And so Peter went out and wept bitterly. You can just imagine. I'm sure most of us in this room knows what it means to weep bitterly. I mean, just think about you had... Just not too awful long ago, that very evening, you'd been looking Jesus in the eyeballs. Jesus is warning you what you're going to do. You say, not true, Lord. I'm going to be a radical Christian. And then a little while later, you're denying you even know who he is. And then Jesus looks at you. What would that look look like? I don't personally, you know, you, you could read into this what you want, but I don't think it was a look of scorn or now I'm going to reject you, based upon really what Christ had prayed, probably a look of sorrow, but no doubt a look of love, knowing our Lord. And it just took Peter to tears. But think about what Peter had heard, the type of teaching that Peter had heard in his lifetime that would impact that moment. He's heard Jesus say things like this. Whoever denies me before men, I will deny him before the Father who's in heaven. I've just denied Jesus Christ. First Timothy says, if we endure, we shall reign with him. If we deny him, he'll also deny us. I'm toast. 
yeah, Judas betrayed him, but at least he got some money out of it. I denied him, even knowing him, when a little girl asked me. I got to be worse than Judas. You know, in this moment, there's no way Peter wasn't the good Samaritan to Jesus. He passed by and denied even knew him. He didn't take up his cross. He avoided the cross. He loved his life. He didn't lose his life. He denied someone who had done him no wrong. Peter had special communion with Christ, special privileges. He had been forewarned, so he had more light. He was more culpable. He didn't just break the law of Moses. He broke the law of Christ. By his fruit, he had given himself and everyone around him reason to question whether in fact he was a true believer. He had not abided in Christ. He's a withered branch. He's a smoking smoking flax. He's a bruised reed. A bruised reed. By the way, Isaiah prophesied that Christ would not snuff out a smoking flask or a bruised reed. He would not break off. Matthew 12, 20 says, A bruised reed he will not break. A smoking flax he will not quench till he sins righteousness to victory. And in his name, Gentiles will trust. How is Jesus going to go? I mean, how is Peter going to go and be the one who opens up the door to Gentiles, the defiled, the sinners? How is he going to bring the gospel to these people? Well, Jesus had to get them back to that day on the Lake Gennesaret where Peter says, depart from me, Lord, I'm a I'm a sinful man. And Jesus said, Simon, do not be afraid. From now on, you will catch men. And it's actually within, somewhere within that context that Jesus gives him the name Peter. Even though he keeps calling him Simon, he knew that Peter needed to hear that name. Jesus is the one that gave him the name Peter. <clears throat> Jesus is his rock. And Jesus doesn't blink at what he has bled for. He bled for Peter's denials. And he told Peter in advance, you're going to deny me. But when you return... You're now going to strengthen your brethren. Now we'll have you in a place where you can actually not chop off ears and heads of my sheep, but now you can treat them tenderly the way I treat them. I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith will not fail. And when you return, he says, What are some of the ways that Jesus provided for Peter's comfort? Well, he predicts that he's going to return. 
He calls him Peter in the very same breath that he predicts his denial. Remember the angel at the tomb where the woman were there and, and the angel says, but go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you into Galilee. The angel actually particularizes Peter. He, they, it's like the Lord, when he sent this angel says, make sure you mention Peter by name because he's going to need some encouragement. And then he gently encourages Peter on the beach of Tiberias. Gennesaret, Galilee, Tiberias, it's all the same lake. It's kind of like Mount Baldy, Mount San Antonio. It's different names for the same place. And that's where, you know, you have that beautiful scene of, of, of them eating fish and Jesus saying, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? Do you love me more than these? And there's different ways that people take this. I, I lean towards the interpretation that says, Simon, do you love me more than everybody else here, all these other disciples? Are you the one that really loves me more than anybody? Are you the one that's ready to go to prison and to death? And Jesus, you know, Peter lowers the Greek term, right? He says, Lord, you know, I phileo you, which is an affectionate love. But it's, I think interpreters are right when they say he's, he's wanting to be humble in the way that he expresses that. And so Jesus says, feed my lambs. You're going to strengthen the brethren. And he says a second time, do you love me? You know, I phileo you, tend my sheep. Do you love me? And this time he's grieved. He says, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus says, feed my sheep. So beautiful the way Jesus handles Peter on the beach and just prepares him for the ministry that he still has on the other side of his denials. You know, 1 Timothy 1.12, it says, if we endure we shall reign with him. If we deny him, he'll deny us. And if you just put the period there and don't read the rest, it can, man, that seems discouraging. But as is so often true in the scriptures, a lot of times we hear the law before we hear the gospel. In verse 13, it says, if we are faithless, what? He remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. We might deny him, but he can't deny himself. And if we're in Christ, he ain't denying Christ. So the real difference then is when Christ comes with this gospel of free grace through faith alone. And in spite of our sins and and shortfallings that Christ already knows about. When he named you a saint, when he called you a Christian, he knew everything in your future. So that doesn't change your name. But the difference between a, a Judas, per se, and a, and a Peter is not the relative sins in our future. It's are we going to receive the gift package of Christ that it's all about his righteousness that's given to me. And am I going to receive that by faith and grace and say, thank you, Lord, I will take it. I will look to the bronze serpent. Or do we look at this and say, you know what? 
I can do this on my own, thank you very much, and give it back. That's what Judas did. That's what the Israelites did in the wilderness. You know, the only Israelites that died in the bronze serpent chapter in Numbers 21 were those that absolutely refused to look at the bronze serpent. Think about that. You're getting bit by snakes. Moses puts up a bronze serpent at the order of the Lord and says, anybody that looks at that will be immediately healed. All you literally have to do is this. And you're healed. Which means, why did 20-something thousand Israelites die? Because they did this. That's it. You just say, I will not look to Christ. You can have it back, thank you very much. I can get there on my own. The Father cannot deny himself. Let's talk about some uses or takeaways or applications of this doctrine as we wrap things up. How have you been reminded of the love of Christ for you? What is his love compelling you to do as a result of uh, this section of scripture? I want to give you five things that stand out to me, but you guys could, I'm sure, come up with all kinds of other things in your small group or when you talk as a family. One thing that, one of the takeaways for me is God is a name changer, which is a game changer, right? Love an article that I read recently where the author says this, God renames people. He does it all over the scripture. Abram becomes Abraham, Sarai, Sarah, Jacob, Israel. Saul becomes Paul. God is a renaming God. He's a God who takes one thing and makes it another. And he does this with us as well. He's taken us sinners and named us saints. 1 Corinthians 1, 2. He has taken us who were his enemies, named us his children. John 1, 12. He has taken us the ungodly and named us righteous, 2 Corinthians 5.21. And this is who we are now. He goes on and says, God is full of surprises, but he is never surprised by our sin. When he changed Simon Peter's, or Simon's name to Peter, he knew how Simon would fail to live up to his name. He knew there would be sinking beneath the waves. He knew there would be sleeping instead of praying. He knew all about the denial and compromise, but that changes nothing. Simon's name is now Peter because Jesus says so. God is a name changer. Secondly, Christ is a curse reverser. He's a curse reverser. He turns Satan's curses and accusations into blessings. The devil actually has granted some level of permission to shake the disciples as wheat to sift them. And what does it produce but humbler disciples who are so appreciative of their Lord that then are now equipped to go out and begin to do work in humility and share the gospel as sinner saints. And by the way, as we've seen in the book of Revelation, there's coming a time when that accuser is going to be cast out of heaven. As it says in Revelation 12.10, And I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength, the kingdom of our God, the power of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brethren who accused them before God night or day and night has been cast down. 
And then it goes on to say, they overcame him by the blood of the lamb, the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives to death. They overcome by Christ's death for them and, and their faith and testimony in Christ's finished work and his righteousness. And that's what compels us to actually be willing to do things that we wouldn't have done otherwise. As it turns out, most of the disciples did give up their lives for Christ. Not because they were like radical for the Lord, but because they were loved by Christ. And they knew his grace. Christ is a curse reverser. Galatians 3.13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us when he went to the cross, right? He became the curse for us. So God's a name changer. He's a cur- Christ is a curse reverser. But thirdly, Christ loves his sheep, which is why he wants gentle shepherds. 1 Peter 5, not lording it over those entrusted to you. Christ cares about you. He cares about his lambs. And that's why some of the harshest words in scripture are actually given towards teachers and pastors and religious people that exalt themselves above the flock. We have to be very careful. It says, not let many of you become teachers lest because we'll receive what? Stricter judgment. Christ cares about the flock. We're not to be lording it over the flock. And Leon Morris says, he who has been through deep waters has the experience that enables him to help others. And that's what I've personally experienced to my wife and my kids at this church. It's one of the reasons why we love our church is because our pastors and elders and and their wives, they've been through deep waters. And so when they've come to me and my wife and our kids and tried to help us out of deep waters, there's there's a gentleness, there's a truth, and they're pointing to the real strength, and that is Christ. Fourthly, Christ is our name tag exchanger. You know, we are, all of us in this room, we are Simon, you know, but we've been given new names, Peter as it were. Christ comes along and he calls you mine. He calls you Christian. He calls you son, daughter, brethren. We're not Christians because we're crushing it as fully devoted Christ followers. We're Christians because Jesus took everything that is true of us as his and gave everything that is true of him as ours. All our sins, all our sin for all his righteousness, he swapped name tags with us. That's what Christ did. Yes, Jesus knew what he was getting when he renamed Peter and he knew what he was getting when he renamed you and me. He has named us saints, friends, children, heirs, righteous of God. And this good news remains forever, incorruptible, 1 Peter 1, 25. And his name is faithful and true. The last takeaway I'd, I would lay out for us is Jesus is a complete savior. He's not a partial savior. Jesus didn't die on the cross say it is finished and then tag you and say, you're it. 
This isn't your it theology. It's all on you now. I did the hard part. Now you go out and do the rest. You take care of your sanctification because that's on you. What does Hebrews 7.25 say? Therefore, he is able to save completely to the uttermost those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Those who come to God through Christ get justified and then he always lives to intercede for them. He is a complete savior, as John Bunyan says in his book on this very text. That's why we can say with Paul in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, no temptations overtaken you, but such as common to man, but God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with every temptation will give you a way of escape that you may be able to bear it because he's faithful. And it's why we look to Christ, the author and finisher, the completer of our faith, who as Hebrews 12, 2 says, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God, doing what? Interceding, refreshing our justification. He who began the good work in you will complete it. That's the kind of complete savior we have. And let's, let's not misunderstand that after this scene in Luke 22, that now Peter's troubles were all behind him all you got to do is read the book of acts galatians you still have saints arguing over things all the epistles are basically dealing with true believers having troubles you have paul himself that confronts peter because peter was being a hypocrite and he says i confronted him to his face and even barnabas was being carried away by his hypocrisy because he wasn't sitting down having table fellowship with the gentiles Jesus knew all that too. But Jesus knew that Peter would eventually give up his life for his Lord. John 21 says, verse 18, Most assuredly, Jesus is speaking to Peter. I say to you, when you were younger, you girded yourself and walked where you wished. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will gird you and carry you where you do not wish. And this he spoke signifying by what death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, follow me. We know by church tradition that Peter did give up his life for the Lord. It wasn't because he wished it. It's because Jesus predicted it. Jesus empowered him to suffer in such a way. What do we place in our faith in? What is it that's going to cause our faith to survive? Satan's after us. We've got indwelling sin, but Christ has renamed you and he always lives to make intercession for you. Let me just end with one story that I heard recently about a, a dear old saint that loved Christ, but was in their declining days and mentally they were declining and they were having trouble even staying focused on the gospel and would weave in and out with their thoughts. And a young new pastor began to go visit this older gentleman and one day found out that he was pretty near death story. He's probably going to pass away with just in a few hours. And so this pastor went to the old man 
and was praying with him and reading scripture and held his hands. And he just pleaded with this, with this older gentleman, think on Christ, remember Christ. And in a moment of Holy Spirit-filled clarity, this old man said, I don't think I can remember Christ, but he remembers me. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that there is not an hour that you are not near us. And there is no night so dark that your love cannot cheer us. What a wonderful gift has been given to us in our Savior. We know that you will not refuse anyone a home in heaven who comes to God through you. You are indeed the author of our faith and the finisher of our faith, and you will hold us fast. I pray, Lord, for all of us. We pray for the sheep that are gathered here, that when we fear that our faith would fail and when we fear that the devil is going to win, Lord, that we would be reminded that you are the one that holds us fast. We pray all this in Christ's name and all God's people said, amen.